When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Because statesmen have hazarded their reputation in foreign policy, later historians have judged them for it. Henry Kamen In the opening days of 1647, Abel Servian, one of the foremost French plenipotentiaries operating in Munster, noted to Mazarin of the French wounding of Spain by the cutting off of its Spanish road, which had proven critical throughout Spanish history as the major supply route by which Spain supplied its European possessions over land. He wrote, This dangerous communication of the forces of the House of Austria, which our fathers feared, is now broken and discontinued by the efforts and the proven conduct of your majesty. Abel Servian would have known full well, though, that the cutting of the Spanish road wasn't the only wound France had inflicted on Spain. The revolt in Catalonia was still in progress, and in its tenure had consumed Spanish resources and caused widespread embarrassment to Spanish ministers and sovereign alike. It had driven a deep wedge between the region that once belonged to the Kingdom of Aragon, and had enabled France to slip into the area and back the armed rebels by the widespread occupation of the previously lucrative province. But Catalonia was just one symptom of the illness afflicting Spain. The breakaway of Portugal from its Iberian Union, founded two kings ago in 1580, was another. King John IV of Portugal now upheld his claim to that throne and Spanish forces, having been beaten back from the region in 1640 following a failed counter-offensive, could offer little in the way of force to bring the newly resurgent empire back into line. Spain had lost a chunk of territory along the Rhine to France, which as we mentioned cut its Spanish road, but it also deprived it of its major entry point into the Holy Roman Empire, and thus cut it off from its Habsburg relatives in Austria. After this, the two branches would never be the same. They would never enjoy the kind of closeness that was facilitated during the Thirty Years' War, 
In any case, history enthusiasts will note that the Spanish branch of the Habsburgs is not long for this world. In 1702, the war of the Spanish succession will be fought over the Spanish throne once its final Habsburg king dies. What is notable about that war is the French involvement in it. Not only did the French king claim the throne of Spain for his son, but that French king was the exact same man whose Habsburg mother is presiding over his regency during our narrative. Louis XIV would be a very long-living king, and while his reign of seven decades broke numerous records, it is also notable because within it, the very nature of the European balance of power changed. Before Louis XIV, the Habsburgs reigned supreme in Austria, Spain, and across the New World. By the time of Louis's death, the Habsburgs had been replaced by the Anglo-French rivalry that was to characterise European relations for the next 150 years. Historians, it is true, like their phases of history. They like to cut history up into neat bundles of relevant circumstances and similar ideas. Sometimes, it actually helps us to understand the period in question better, though, and recognise it for its significance. Spain had replaced France as Europe's dominant power, and a lot of that had been achieved during the reign of Philip II, which began in 1555. Even before that, though, France was consumed by its own troubles that had resulted from its own internal reactions to the Reformation. While the Holy Roman Empire was sorting out the Peace of Augsburg, designed to pacify its religious elements and prevent the kind of troubles seen in France, France was tearing itself apart and slipping away from its original place at top of Europe's food chain. For many years, Spain and France had battled for supremacy in Italy. As far back as episode 21 of this podcast, which sought to introduce the period after our focus on the 20th century, Spain had fought to solidify its position there at the expense of France, and the French king spoke thereafter of their need to press Spain in the region where they believed they had the most legitimate claim and the best chance of prosperity and success. Spain had always come out on top though, and it had used its position in Italy to cement its control over the Mediterranean while it kept its rivalry with the Ottoman Empire alive. It had sought to play Italy's minor kingdoms, such as Sicily and Sardinia, against both each other and France, and France had only finally broken this connection with the hard work of Richelieu in the early 1630s. With the capture of Spain's Rhine possessions, the collapse of the encirclement of France that had stretched from the Rhine to Milan to the Pyrenees was complete. It was the end of an era in Europe and the beginning of a French claim to European predominance that would culminate with Napoleon and end only with the onset of German unification in 1871. Cardinal Mazarin, though he did not know it, was an integral piece of this European order who, while not as well known or understood as Bismarck, Napoleon, or indeed Louis XIV, was instrumental in providing Europe with an introduction to its next era. French predominance, though here it teetered with military inconsistency and relied heavily upon its allies, was beginning to be seen by those in Europe, and it was witnessed first in the two Westphalian cities of Münster and Osnabrück, where French plenipotentiaries would stake their claim to the post-war era that seemed, after three decades of war, somehow near. For three decades, armies had fought each other for differing ideas. What began as a religious issue centred on the balance of power in the Electoral College of the Holy Roman Empire largely escaped from this box, and mutated into a conflict indistinguishable from this upon its eventual end. 
The plenipotentiaries of the interested parties at the two cities had spent a number of years trying to apply their war interests to a post-war settlement. The Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand III, wanted to maintain as far as possible his domains, influence, and the religious expansions his father had commissioned upon his early victories. Ferdinand, together with the Spanish King, Philip IV, represented a lobby for the Old Order, and it represented a lobby that was rapidly losing ground with every passing month as its military situation deteriorated. We saw last time how 1646 bore witness to the essential end of military independence for either Maximilian of Bavaria or Ferdinand III. Either they worked together or they lost alone. Unquestionably, France and Sweden had achieved military supremacy together, but Mazarin still feared the results of another campaign, lest it made the Swedes too powerful, Bavaria too ruined, or resulted in a surprise loss that destroyed the diplomatic progress of the Plenies. However, it was in the military sphere that the real gains were made. Without manoeuvring the Bavarian Habsburg force and invading the defenceless Bavaria, Mazarin's use of Maximilian to guard Bavaria by granting France its demands would never have been so successful. It enabled France to increase its demands along the Rhine, which began as Alsace, then Brissac, and then Philipsburg. Secret deals ensured German support on the ground to the French goals, and ensured also that Habsburg resistance to French demands ended, so that mid-September 1646, France was able to sign its preliminary peace treaty with Ferdinand. If this was ratified later, then peace would exist between the Habsburgs of Austria and France. Peace with Spain was another matter. After attempting to threaten the Emperor with his exclusion from a Franco-Spanish peace, Mazarin grew to believe that peace with the Emperor would be easier to achieve than a peace with Spain, owing mostly to the complications presented by the Spanish negotiations with the Dutch Republic, that threatened France with its being alone to fight Spain in the Netherlands' war theatre. Indeed, Mazarin knew that in early 1647 the Dutch no longer feared Spain, but they did fear for their future if France was allowed to replace the Spanish presence along their borders. The revelations of the Spanish that France planned on swapping its occupation of Catalonia for one of the South Netherlands was designed to redirect Dutch hostility from the Spanish towards the French. And it worked. Despite the fact that the Dutch had been fighting Spain for nearly 80 years, and despite the fact that France and the Dutch Republic had been de facto allies for almost the same length of time, Dutch statesmen were pragmatic enough to recognise the dangers posed by a resurgent France. Louis XIV would realise these dangers in his wars against his former ally. But while the Dutch on paper were an ally of France, it was de facto trying to secure its own future by not doing France any favours. Mazarin was aware of how France was viewed by its enemies as well as its allies. He worried constantly about keeping his allies sweet and not offending them by strengthening France to their detriment. He wanted to keep the Swedish friendship alive because the war with Spain necessitated greater French attention was paid to the Spanish theatres than the imperial ones. Although our coverage of the events along the Rhine have been far more extensive than any of those Spanish theatres, that's mostly because I saw the greatest impact to the negotiations occur for France because of their results. Though Mazarin believed that the main event was Spain, it was along the borders of the HRE that France could make the greatest diplomatic gains for itself. Yet, it was precisely because these diplomatic gains had been so great that Mazarin witnessed a drop in his allies' view of France. 
The mutual distrust that the Franco-Swedish relationship endured was covered last time. But in September 1646, Sweden's fears would surely have been confirmed when it was revealed that France had achieved its demands and then some. However, Axel Oxenstierna, and indeed his son Johan, who negotiated at Osnabrück, did not seem to fear the results of France satisfying its war demands before Sweden, as much as Mazarin expected that they would. On the contrary, Axox welcomed the French offers to help Sweden achieve its war aims, and the first order of business to be solved was the sticky situation of Pomerania, where the elector of Brandenburg was entitled to the lands by right of inheritance while Sweden felt it required the region for its own future security. The deal to partition the region between Sweden and Brandenburg was a great coup for France, since it moved the issue of Swedish satisfaction forward, and thus meant that the two crowns would hopefully be able to satisfy their war demands as one. A key question regarding the Peace of Westphalia is why it took so long. Was it really that difficult to resolve everyone's issues, and if peace really was the major desire of the interested parties, then why did it only materialise in 1648, five years after the initial negotiations in the two cities began? It would be easy of course to blame one individual, or state in particular, for the delays, but quite simply the desire for peace was not greater than the desire to actually gain something, and that was why peace could not just happen when the negotiations began. As we saw from previous episodes on the making of Westphalia, there were far too many issues underlying the negotiations for peace to occur simply because those involved wanted it. All plenies had strict orders to stick to their home government's demands, and there was a great number of plenies angling for their own opportunity to better their position by means of strategic alliance or offers or negotiations. The business of trading secrets proved highly lucrative and often highly effective in changing how each state's plenies viewed their counterparts. Everyone had ulterior motives. Peace was merely the way by which a state could ensure that its gains were solidified and legitimised by contract. What the states in question really wanted then was not peace. What they wanted was gains for themselves that such a peace could ensure. The process of negotiations should have accelerated in 1647, with the recognition that, from the imperial point of view, military victory was impossible. Yet, much like the Japanese at the end of World War II, the aim for the Habsburgs by 1647, as a realist, would have understood this to be quite impossible. Instead, the possibility of making one's rivals grant concessions due to the threat posed by more campaigns was hoped to bring gain. Failing that, the Habsburgs worked day and night to drive wedges of varying sizes and flavour between the Triple Alliance of Sweden, France and the Dutch. Another more mundane issue to explain the pace of negotiations was that of communications. In other words, the Postal Service. As well as technicalities, in other words, the granting of powers to plenies. And of course, ceremonials. In other words, issues that meant very little practically. For example, the order of precedence. But which had attached to them the stigma of weakness or strength depending on one's position on the issue. The very fact that Sweden and France had to send so many letters to one another, while they resided primarily in Osnabrück and Münster, respectively, also played a great part in slowing the pace of peace. This is noted by Derek Croxton in his book, Peacemaking in Early Modern Europe. Quote, Since the two crowns were careful not to advance negotiations without each other, although they were not always successful of this, 
the talks were delayed repeatedly while France and Sweden waited to confer with one another. This shows up in the presentation of each successive proposal, and is even more obvious in the refusal of the French to sign a preliminary agreement in May 1646 without the Swedes having done the same thing. End quote. If France made commitments to peace before Sweden, then Sweden would be faced with greater diplomatic pressure from the HRE, so the belief went. Whether this was practically true remains debatable, especially when one considers that French pressure likely did more to move Sweden towards peace than imperial pressure did. Just because France had signed its preliminary peace treaty with the Emperor did not necessarily mean that Mazarin would have been content to let any opportunities pass him by. Yet, Mazarin would surely have been mindful of the view that was held by France's colleagues, of her getting too strong, when he wrote, The greater this crown's prosperity becomes, and the more it increases, the more it excites envy even in our friends, and jealousy and fear in those who are indifferent. Of course, these friends Mazarin referred to were not the Swedes, who seemed totally unmoved by the French diplomatic achievements in September 1646. By early 1647, it was the Dutch who were firmly, almost to a united degree across the entirety of the provinces, against French territorial aggrandizement, and they were determined almost to a man to form real deals with Spain in order to prevent it. France was unusual in the Thirty Years' War, because it was the only member of the Triple Alliance fighting both branches of the Habsburgs at once. The Dutch made it plain on numerous occasions that they were not in a state of war with Ferdinand II or his son. Dutch military ventures in the north of the empire would have been confronted with a morass of complications. And anyway, the Dutch war against Spain was more than enough, the States General believed, to keep the resources of the Dutch Republic occupied. It did not need another front opened locally. Certainly not in a region where it could claim neither legitimate interest nor see any possibility for gains. Similarly, the Swedes had emphasised the fact that they were not at war with Spain, especially when Spanish plenies visited Osnabrück during its negotiations with the Dutch, and when the French plenies were often faced with the prospect of Swedish plenies sitting on their negotiations with Spain in Münster, which they resented. Spain, indeed, enjoyed relations barely resembling the courtesy of the time with Sweden, as the Dutch did with the Ferdinands. There had been enough... There had been enough close shaves for both members of the Triple Alliance, and instances where the issues could have escalated into full-blown all-out war existed for Sweden in the late 1620s, when Spain appeared poised to join the Emperor in cementing Habsburg influence in the Baltic. Also for the Dutch in the late 1620s, having a wealth of Habsburg units marching so close to one's territory, and knowing full well that Spain was regularly reinforced by the Imperials, ensured that relations for all involved remained icy. There were additional overlapping scenarios too, such as Spanish proposals to extend the war against Sweden if Denmark would join the war against the Dutch. This would of course have driven Sweden to declare war against Denmark in retaliation, and would likely have brought France in against Denmark too. Spanish diplomats even formed wide-ranging agreements with Poland as a means to check Sweden and fulfil the badly needed Europe-wide Habsburg alliance between the Poles, Austrians and Spanish. The Danes, as we know, never had a chance to play their hand, because Axe Ox ensured that General Torstensson cut it off in the surprise invasion of 1644. 
However, for Axox, the question of Poland remained an issue and one he was determined to solve when the 20-year truce with that country, signed in 1635, expired in 1655. Indeed, the Swedish war against Poland in that year, nicknamed the Deluge, would realise Sweden's dream of totally defeating its old enemy to the point of offending all sensibilities in Europe, even that of France. It's easy, in other words, to get lost in the diplomatic intrigues of the era, especially when there is such difficulty in finding a concise account of the last two years of negotiations. Derek Croxton's book that we've been drawing on inexplicitly ends with a summary of Cardinal Mazarin's character after 1646, without having even covered the last two years in the kind of detail I've been spoiled with so far. Thus, it is difficult to make this episode as concise and focused as my previous ones, a problem obviously not helped by the fact that this being the last episode, I have set very high expectations for it, and want to go out with a bang. Perhaps the best point we can resume our close coverage of events from is the death of the Dutch stadtholder Frederick Henry, who has been something of a stalwart of our podcast since appearing as leader of the House of Orange in 1625. Frederick Henry's death on the 14th of March 1647 dramatically slowed Dutch negotiations with Spain. Before his death, Spain had appeared close to a serious breakthrough with the Dutch peace accords owing to a combination of French ignorance and Spanish threats to abandon the Spanish Netherlands to France. A new author I've located, Paul Sanino, notes in his book Mazarin's Quest, The Congress of Westphalia and the Coming of the Fronde, the nature of the Spanish pressures against the Dutch. Quote, Behind all the flattery was the threat that if the Dutch did not consummate their negotiations by signing a separate peace, then the Spanish might decide to abandon the Low Countries. The printed versions of these letters and the number of manuscript copies distributed in the archives of Europe provide ample evidence to their dissemination and impact. End quote. Time and again, Mazarin had assured his plenies that the Dutch signing a separate peace with Spain was not a threat. In particular, he believed that after the signing of the French preliminaries, that the Dutch and Spanish could even be mediated by France. But the idea for the Dutch that France would even suggest such an interference in its own negotiations, which don't forget were the product of an individual series of wars between those two polities that stretched back eight decades and had formed a part of the Dutch national consciousness, was not just insulting, it was dangerous. When word reached French plenies of the Dutch moves, and when the Spanish presented Servienne with the draft in late February, he wrote hastily to Mazarin of its contents. Servienne then, in reply to the Dutch letter, explaining the Republic's position, swore that, as God was his witness, he had never tried to increase French demands nor exit the war so as to acquire a better deal for France. Yet, Servienne believed, this was exactly what the Dutch were attempting to do. It was this French ignorance, and certainly hypocrisy, considering the degree to which French demands grew in 1646 with the increase in military fortunes, that really drove the wedge between France and the Dutch that Spain had so hoped to cultivate. On March the 4th, 1647, Servienne presented this ill-advised letter, and the day it was read out in the States General, with all its falsifications, accusations and fabrications, anti-French opinion in the deepest levels of Dutch Republican government soared. The Dutch stadtholder, Frederick Henry, was by now an old man, who for all his life had advocated war. Recently, however, he had converted to the Dutch Peace Party, 
since he saw the continuation of the war as a boon for France and a danger to the Dutch, especially if France were able to realise its dream of capturing the South Netherlands, or if Spain made good on its promise to abandon it. Paul Sonino notes on able Servian's position within the Republic during the event of Frederick Henry's death. Quote, Everyone knew it was imminent, and in the early hours of the 14th of March at The Hague, the Prince of Orange finally expired at the age of 63. The event produced one of Servian's rare exhibitions of humour. I think, he remarked to the Portuguese ambassador, that the King of Spain would pay as much now to bring him back to life as he has spent over the past 10 or 12 years to send him to the hereafter. It was also a bitter example of how to lose a friend, if Servian wanted to reflect on it, but he was in no mood to do so. Instead, he was more interested in making a new one. On the following day, Frederick Henry's 20-year-old son, now William II, Prince of Orange, was invested by the States General with all his father's generally offices. Servian saw his opening. The present Prince of Orange, he wrote to Mazarin, is of an entirely different inclination than the one his father had held for two years. In fact, Servian feared that the new prince was too hot-headed, and, in his passion for continuing the war, would break openly with his mother and the province of Holland. Still, with his collaboration and support, there was fresh hope for Dutch participation in the campaign. End quote. William II was a godsend for Mazarin, because it would take nearly a year for the Dutch Republican apparatus to again persuade their stadtholder of the necessity for peace, and during that time, the Cardinal believed Franco-Dutch pressure would force a peace upon Spain. This was Plan A. Plan B involved a more coordinated campaign of pressure against the Emperor to break off his relationship with Spain, and leave Spain isolated. Mazarin wanted the fear of being left alone to spur Spain to make peace. France, of course, was very afraid of being left alone as well, though. And as our examination of everyone's abandonment issues in the last episode illustrated, their presentation and understanding of events for their enemies revolved around the French premise of pressure and the fear of the anticipated changes in military affairs in the HRE, which drove French plenies to gain much by early 1647. Yet, French work was not complete. Max of Bavaria still held out despite his vulnerability, and Mazarin hoped that France, with its resources extended in Catalonia and Flanders, would not have to commit to another campaign in the region. The French commander along the Rhine, Turenne, it was understood, was still in place with his Swedish counterpart, Gustav Wrangel, and Mazarin hoped that their very existence would be enough to persuade Max that enough was enough. To the immense shock of everyone then, Mazarin proved to be correct when Maximilian of Bavaria, having sent Bavarian plenies to the town of Ulm to negotiate with plenies from Sweden, France and Cologne, approved not only a peace treaty with these parties, but also a commitment to violate his alliance with Ferdinand. When this agreement was signed, as it turned out on the very day of Frederick Henry's death on the 14th of March 1647, it would certainly have spelled out to the Habsburgs in the clearest terms that their cause was lost. For Max of Bavaria, at least, it appeared to be the end of his friendship with the Habsburgs. The two crowns had detached him from his obligations to his emperor, after all. On the day when a critical death in the Allied camp swung negotiations in favour of France, here was her long-time enemy and part-time negotiating partner throwing in the towel. 
It seemed that, after 30 years of fighting for his emperor, Max just couldn't take it anymore. He'd seen every loss, every event, every victory in the conflict, and now he'd definitively declared himself to have had enough. It was an emphatic statement, to the effect that the wily Maximilian had finally run out of tricks. Maximilian of Bavaria had benefited from the Thirty Years' War, on a level perhaps unparalleled across Europe. Considering the fact that Bavaria signed itself out of the war in March 1647, it managed to still maintain a remarkable degree of its original conquests that it had consumed, most notably the Palatinate along the Rhine in the early 1620s. As the Emperor's keenest advocate and ally in the HRE, Maximilian had been the anchor of Ferdinand II, and then a key voice for Ferdinand III to consider. The man's experience, when one looks at the fact that Max was alive and well during the defenestration that began the events of the Thirty Years' War back in 1618, was unparalleled also by 1647, which made him a double loss to the Emperor. Though at times his loyalty appeared shaky, especially when Munich was captured and his arch-nemesis Frederick V of the Palatinate, remember him, was playing tennis with Gustavus on his ducal courts, Max refrained from extricating himself from the Emperor's circle. Yet, even after all they'd been through together, by 1647 the situation had gotten so bad that even Max could not maintain the facade of effectively answering the Franco-Swedish military challenges. Perhaps the realisation that he was so alone, despite Ferdinand's pledges, drove him to make peace. We of course cannot know what went on in the man's head, but it is worth noting how anathema to his character the entire Treaty of Ulm appears. Ulm was the town where, over 30 years before, France had negotiated to disarm the Evangelical Union, remember them, which effectively left Frederick of the Palatinate powerless against the Holy Roman Empire. Now it was somewhat fitting, for those that didn't like him at least, to note that by signing on the dotted line at Ulm, Max was doing to Ferdi exactly what the Evangelical Union had done to Freddy. Without the Bavarians to act as a buffer against France, Ferdinand's own heartland was an open door. Without Bavarian soldiers to fill out his ranks, Vienna's remaining troops couldn't withstand the force of the Swedes. But Maximilian didn't have any appetite for ironies, for symbolism, or things coming full circle. He had an immense appetite for peace, and for the end of the ravaging of his beloved duchy that had once positioned him as the richest man in Europe, but which now resembled a smouldering, aching wasteland. It had been marched over so many times, it had been plundered, garrisoned in, taxed to the hilt, and so emptied of men into wasted levies that he simply could not continue any longer. Though he had appeared for so long content to venture perilously close to the edge of ruin while every resource ran in the red, reality had caught up with him, and there remained no other option. Supposedly, the prospect of another invasion of yet another occupation of any one of his beloved cities by the plunder-hungry Swedes and French was the event that tipped him over the edge. Just like Brandenburg and Saxony, when they made their separate peace with the enemies of the Habsburgs, neither they, nor apparently now Bavaria, were willing to prolong a war they could not win, in the name of an emperor who could offer them no protection. Max, by signing at Ulm, hoped to save Bavaria from any further excesses and to guard what remained of its wealth from the unopposed allied forces in his lands. He was to be sorely disappointed. 
Geoffrey Parker, in his book The Thirty Years' War, gives us the lowdown on what led Max to his decision. Quote, Although there was no pitched battle, the Habsburg army was driven back towards Hesse, leaving Bavaria and the Rhineland to be systematically plundered over the winter of 1646-47. It was scarcely surprising that on March 14, 1647, the desperate electors of Bavaria and Cologne, with some of their allies, signed a ceasefire at Ulm, with the representatives of France, Sweden and Hesse Castle. Mainz followed suit in May. It was agreed that the anti-imperialists would be allowed to occupy three strategic towns in Maximilian's duchy, and that the Catholic electors would no longer fight on the imperial side, but instead discuss terms for a separate peace. Meanwhile, Wrangel led his forces back into Austria. End quote. Thus, Mazarin had managed a sort of coup, because not only did he not have to fight Bavaria anymore, but he could now rely on Bavarian support as a lobby against Ferdinand in the two cities. Sweden, meanwhile, was free to wreak havoc in the empire, as Parker's acknowledgement of Wrangel's invasion of Austria denotes. It gave France the space to cover its fronts as well, such as in Catalonia, where the French position remained a headache for Spain, but where France was also expending vast resources and had suffered its share of defeats, most notably Laeda over the summer of 1644, which saw Spanish forces better their Franco-Catalonian enemies and take a key portion of the west of Catalonia. The front stabilised with the siege of Tortosa in early 1645, and thereafter granted Spain a port on the Mediterranean from where it could resupply its embattled forces in Catalonia. The Spanish were thus making slow progress, but by 1647 the exhausted resources of both sides meant that Catalonia effectively remained divided with Barcelona still in rebel hands, where it would remain for another five years until 1652. Mazarin understood that Catalonia was a withdrawal in progress, and that for the best results in Munster, France would have to hold on to it for as long as she spoke about the future of the region with regards to her interest. However, from what we've seen, one wonders if what may have been best for France was the total evacuation of the region, to remove the Dutch fear that the French wanted to swap Catalonia for Flanders. Mazarin, though he was certainly keeping in mind France's strategic interests, appears to have removed the concept of sensitivity from his mind when he elected to send the now free from Rhine service Turenne to campaign in Flanders, at the very place the Dutch did not want the French to be. Mazarin certainly had his work cut out for him when attempting to persuade Johann Oxenstierna, Axel's son and a key Swedish plenipotentiary, of the need to honour Bavaria's requests for peace and refocus efforts on the Habsburg family. Similarly difficult was the slowly boiling issues of Brandenburg's final treaty with the Swedes. Another French plenipotentiary, this one based in Osnabrück, sought to solve Pomerania and effectively split it in half. After much French prodding this was accomplished, with great pride on Davo's part who noted his keenness now to turn Swedish attention towards a peace with Bavaria and a final invasion of the Habsburg hereditary lands. As Paul Sonino notes, quote, Without much progress in Munster or in The Hague, Davo had to rely almost exclusively on his own powers of persuasion in Osnabrück, which were by no means negligible. 
After threatening to return immediately to Munster, he got Oxenstierna to concede the electorate and the upper palatinate to the Duke of Bavaria. It was a great step towards the preservation of French influence and of Catholicism in the empire, assuming the Swedes would not reverse themselves. He also did his best to present himself as a friend of the Protestants while privately attempting to strengthen Trotmansdorf by assuring him of French support if the Swedes became unreasonable. Johann Oxenstierna, however, quickly changed his tune. When Davo pulled his ultimate weapon and claimed France would stop subsidising the Swedes, Johann Oxenstierna softened his tone, but only slightly. Davo continued to try his balancing act by supporting every demand of Hesse-Kassel, but he left Osnabrück with the consciousness of a new European order. If the Swedes wish to tear up the empire, he wrote, there is no reason to let them do so without us participating. End quote. However, Mazarin remained drawn to the idea of invading Spanish-owned regions of the Netherlands rather than committing to a joint assault on Vienna. Mazarin's moves towards Spain do have an impact on history, and they are a major reason why France today holds a part of Flanders. The historical county of Flanders, today divided between Belgium and France, was owned fully by the Spanish in their Netherlands before the French chipped off little pieces of it. This strategy was firmly prepared by Mazarin, who, if you'll remember, strongly desired to invade Luxembourg while a short-term truce existed with Bavaria in spring 1646. It was the French chipping off of parts of Flanders that made the Dutch so concerned, though, since the French were very unlikely to leave the region now that they had partially conquered it. Over the summer of 1647, negotiations in the two cities centred on utilising the pressure that the lobby of Bavaria granted to the benefit of the two crowns of Sweden and France. But Max of Bavaria was growing impatient. Eager to fully end the war rather than merely sit in a ceasefire deal, and perhaps expecting Ferdinand to have sued for peace soon after him, Max began to wonder if he had in fact made a rash decision by signing a truce with France and Sweden, and Trotmansdorf began to get wind of these rumours emanating from Munich. Mazarin got wind of them as well, but he did not believe them, since Bavaria did not have an army with which to fight, and Max's exhaustion was a well-known fact. Yet the rumours persisted that Max was not content to sit on the sidelines, and that he wanted instead to use the pressure of the reopened Bavarian front to force French concessions. Just as the French plenies has asserted before, Max of Bavaria remained malleable to France only when he was under direct military pressure. And with this pressure gone, Max began to dream again. But there were underlying problems with the peace anyway. The issue of the Palatinate was a major sticking point for Sweden, who did not want Bavaria, after its campaigns of opportunism and Protestant persecution, to acquire such a large post-war gain. The efforts of France to mediate this grievance of Sweden in favour of Bavaria was thought by Max to be insufficient, and he feared that the French would in the end give in to the Swedes and allow the Palatinate family to return. In addition, Swedish plenies lamented that Bavarian soldiers still made up a great portion of what remained of Ferdinand's home guard, and that Bavaria still maintained the appearance of an imperial ally, as it remained loyal to Austria diplomatically in the two cities. Thus, Swedish plenies were perhaps warming to the idea of defeating Bavaria more heavily, and ruining its prospects to ever again threaten its ambitions in the empire. 
In the meantime, Bavaria itself was said to be preparing for a military resurgence. And Mazarin's Bavarian spies informed him that anti-French opinion in Munich was at an all-time high. It would appear then that Mazarin was the only one interested in keeping a peace with Bavaria, and that he would be fighting an uphill battle all the way. Then in early September, Maximilian solved the problem for him. After apparently suffering an effective bout of amnesia, Max had elected to throw his lot back in with Ferdinand, in the hopes that Bavaria would be safer as a militant bulwark against the two crowns than as a Pacific semi-ally of the Habsburgs. Max's flip-flopping was a feature of his character, and was a result of his deep historic relationship with the Habsburgs that proved so difficult for him to abandon. It certainly took a degree of bravery to make such an about-face, but Max likely wouldn't have done it for purely sentimental reasons. Bavarian Plenies had informed him of Mazarin's concerns within the Netherlands and of France's pressing need to strike a hard blow against Spain before French forces had to fight without Dutch aid. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The death of Frederick Henry bought France some time, but Max felt that his best chance for Bavaria to gain would be to enter this period of uncertainty for France as a renewed enemy. Max was sort of correct. Bavarian's re-entry into the war did cause immense headaches for Mazarin, whose major force was occupied in the Netherlands, and it did complicate matters with Sweden, since French plenipotentiaries had worked so hard to push Sweden towards peace with the Emperor, which had resulted in a preliminary peace treaty in February 1647. Yet the eruption of the war in Bavaria now suggested a furthering of the general war, and that the limited steps that had been made towards peace in the past would now be thrown away. Plenies of the two cities noted that the Bavarians were joining themselves to imperial plenies and seeking to form a Catholic coalition against France and Sweden in both of the two cities. From this unified position, Max perhaps hoped that his plenies could acquire a beneficial war-ending deal that would not require capitulation, 
and he hoped that Bavaria would not have to fight any actual battles, using the threat posed by a hostile Bavaria's existence to spur the French to concede. Maximilian, you may have noticed, was trying to use the French tactic of before, yet without any of the actual muscle to back his position up. Maturin intended to prove that Maximilian remained powerless to stop the two crowns. Axox was as willing to fight against Max as ever, and the French commander Turenne also had no love for the Bavarian elector. While taking the winter of 1647 to plan the campaign, and leaving the Swedes time to plunder the surrounding countryside, Maxurin finally felt confident to link up with the Swedes in early 1648 and seek Bavarian forces in battle. However, there was none. All that remained of Ferdinand's ability to defend his ally militarily was 10,000 men, against the Franco-Swedish force of 26,000. It was a stark indicator of the Habsburgs' loss of prestige and strength. They had a slim chance of winning. They were lucky to escape total annihilation. On the 17th of May, this battle, called the Battle of Zussmarshausen, near Augsburg, eradicated all that remained of Ferdinand's ability to fight on. The Swedes returned to Bohemia and besieged Prague, while the French refocused their attention in Flanders. Max and Ferdinand were left to soak in their own defeat as their plenies wilted under the pressure exerted by their lack of leverage now in the two cities. It was a shocking come down from where the Habsburgs had once stood. Top of the mountain was not a power in Europe to challenge them, they were now definitively at the bottom, and Max of Bavaria was right there with them, shackled to the emperor he had refused to in the end abandon. Mazarin may have celebrated more the news of the victory in Bavaria, for this meant the definite end of campaigning there, but events at home pulled his attention back. David Milland, in his book Europe at War 1600-1650, notes the French troubles. Quote, Mazarin was in fact only too ready to hasten the end, since his victories were achieved at the price of serious disaffection at home. He has raised loans between 1643 and 1645 on such a scale that government expenditure had reached its peak for the entire war. Thereafter, since he could not increase the revenue from taxes to service these loans, further loans were denied him and he was forced to sell more offices, withhold the salaries of his bureaucrats and invent new taxes. Expedience, which did little to ward off bankruptcy, but a great deal to bring disaffection to a head. When the Paris Parlement was asked to approve his measures, its members, in a manner almost without precedent, united with those of the other sovereign courts in May 1648 to prepare a manifesto of their grievances. They referred to the suffering of the peasantry, and, at greater length, to the non-payment of their own salaries and the sale and reduplication of offices. More significantly, they condemned not only the government's financial policies, but also the employment of intendants to take over so much of their administrative duties. End quote. In a previous episode, we examined Mazarin's style of reforming the French tax service that followed on from that of Richelieu. Essentially, it was a short-term solution of recreating offices, bureaucrats, and making a system whereby every tax agent in the country reported directly to the first minister and could raise their own armies if necessary. In 1642 the practice barely worked, but by 1648 it had gone too far. The Paris Parlement, not so much a representative body or parliament, as much as it was tasked with approving government policies, chose May 1648 to air its grievances in a big way, and Mazarin could no longer ignore them. 
though it had long since been the paymaster of its allies. France in 1648 was in just as dire a financial state as the rest of the states involved in the war. Although Spain actually defaulted on its debts again and declared bankruptcy in 1647, Mazarin feared the honesty involved in all of this and apparently believed that he could stretch the French levers a bit further by taking them from his citizens. These citizens expected to have to pay for the war. That was customary. But the refusal of the nobility to provide for such taxes left the middle classes to bear the brunt of such financial demands, while it left those on the bottom rung of society, the peasants, even worse off. Richelieu and Mazarin had had their fair share of peasant troubles, but the unifying of Paris against his policies was a wake-up call even for Mazarin, as he saw that he had gone too far. So he made an about-face, and withdrew the planned increases for the year that the Parlement had been meant to approve. This meant, though, that while he appeased the citizens for now, France would soon have to declare bankruptcy. The Fronde, which is named after the French word for sling, adapted by commentators of the time to refer to the revolts because of the use of slings to break Mazarin's windows, will be outside of our coverage. But keep in mind that while Mazarin provides over technically victorious France, he will be forced to focus inwards once the war within the empire is concluded. And now, Mazarin was spurred to ensure that this war would be concluded as fast as possible. Knowledge about the goings-on in France persuaded Johann Oxenstierna that Sweden could not afford to remain intransigent about its terms, particularly the indemnity of 5 million Reichsthalers it demanded from Ferdinand. Within Osnabrück, the very stance of Swedish plenies began to soften as they negotiated with the Imperials. Trachmansdorf noted this, and certainly would have informed Spain of the news that the so long hoped for internal weakening of France would soon be realised, and that the Habsburgs in Spain could soon capitalise. Of course, Spain was too far gone by this stage to capitalise, and even with the news of French internal weakness, the French themselves did not stop winning on the ground. On the 20th of August, the French defeated a Spanish army in the Flanders town of Lons, which had been captured the year before by France, but was faced with a Spanish army owing to rumours that the nobility within Lons were attempting to rebel against French rule and follow in the footsteps of the Fronde. The victory cemented French rule over that portion of Flanders, and split the former county between Spanish and French lines. It was a worrying time for the French administration, since although French cavalry carried the day, great concern was had over the commander of the army in Flanders, the Prince of Condé and his loyalty to the French government, considering Condé's position as the de facto leader of France's noble and privileged classes. The French victory at Lens went off without a hitch though, and for the moment, France focused its resources on the two cities, where matters were indeed heating up. Although the French had elected to combat Bavaria and the Habsburgs in battle, and although the Swedes continued to besiege Prague over the summer, by January 30th, 1648, the Dutch had signed their formal peace agreement with Spain, which was due to be ratified in May. This was the Peace of Munster, and it resulted from the mutual desire of Spanish and Dutch plenies, supported by the mediators who believed it would hurry negotiations along to separate their treaties from the other planned peace between the two crowns and the emperor. This is the reason we do not have just the single peace treaty to end the entire conflict of the Thirty Years' War. In order to press the negotiations along at a faster pace, Dutch plenies in particular were instrumental in getting away from their French counterparts and ending their 80-year war with Spain. It had happened so fast that it seemed to take all in the two cities by surprise. 
and indeed Mazarin was in the process of planning the destruction of Bavaria when he was informed. So although he was furious that his planes had not prevented the signing, he recognised that it was in the end an unpreventable act. The Dutch offered to continue their alliance with France for 10 years, to be renewed at the end of each interval, and Mazarin accepted. Though he understood that he had lost the opportunity to press Spain with the Dutch, he also recognised the need to keep the Dutch on side in the future. The Peace of Munster was of course a seriously symbolic and highly significant document. Here was Spain finally giving in and granting the Dutch their formal independence. Not only that, but the Dutch made great gains in overseas trade networks, specifically their India companies, and Portugal remained at a loss to contend with, as Spain had no intention of reimbursing its now rebellious neighbour and Iberian enemy. In fact, it promised the form of Portuguese territories now in Dutch hands as a form of payment, provided the Dutch could hold them. There were celebrations in the streets of all the major cities of the United Provinces. After 80 years of fighting, at times when success seemed impossible against the world's greatest empire, perseverance had paid off. Official ratification of the Peace of Munster was held in a ceremony on the 5th of June 1648, the exact same day that, 80 years before in 1566, the Dutch nobles, the Count of Egmont and the Count of Horn, were executed by the Spanish in an event that sparked the beginning of the initial Dutch revolt. The Dutch, having extricated themselves from the Thirty Years' War at last, would now begin their rapid growth and peacetime beast mode, brought on by their international trade networks and close European dependency on Dutch markets. They were to enjoy naval supremacy and European economic predominance like no other power. But the sweetness was destined to be short-lived. France's young monarch would see to that at a later date. For Philip of Spain, surely the peace with the Dutch meant a concentrated attack by the two Habsburg houses against France. Yet this could not materialise, since not only was the Emperor broke and powerless after Zeus-Marshausen, but he was also being provoked into making peace with Sweden and France, thanks to the former's control over the centre of the Holy Roman Empire and its siege of Prague. Geoffrey Parker outlines the events that led Ferdinand to make the shocking decision to abandon his Habsburg cousins in Spain beginning with the initial tide-turning resulting from the Dutch peace that seemed to flow in the direction of Spain. Quote, Spain was now free to deploy the army of Flanders solely against France, and some small gains were made in the early months of 1648. But Mazarin profited from the defeat of Bavaria at Zeus-Marshausen to transfer to the northern front a large detachment of troops from South Germany. With their aid, on the 20th of August the French inflicted a crushing defeat at Lons on the Spanish army under the personal command of the Emperor's brother, Leopold William, who lost his baggage along with 8,000 men and 30 field guns. End quote. The perennial loser, Leopold William, seen losing at other great Allied victories such as the Second Battle of Breitenfeld, and in his retreat away from Bavaria two years before, had again done what he did best. Though Leopold had switched between commanding Spanish and Imperial troops, this suggested closeness of the two Habsburg branches could not hide the fact that Ferdinand was facing ruin with the Swedish army so close, and nothing between it and Vienna. Parker follows the sequence of events. Quote, it was a poignant moment for Ferdinand. On the one hand, he earnestly desired to send aid to his brother. On the other, he had to reconsider the precarious position of Bohemia. 
Already, on the 26th of July, the new town, suburb of Prague, containing Hradshin Castle, had been captured by the Swedes. The emperor risked losing the entire kingdom unless he swiftly signed the peace. End quote. So it really had come full circle. In 1618, Bohemian rebels threw Habsburg agents out of the windows of Hratchen Castle, persuading Ferdinand II to reinforce his authority in the region and creating a rebellion that would incite foreign intervention and intrigue. In 1648, because an invading army of Swedes who claimed to identify with these rebels from 30 years before had occupied this very castle, it persuaded Ferdinand II's son that the imperial cause was definitively lost. Although the Prague citizens now looked at the Swedes as their firm enemy rather than their saviour, following the mixed experiences of Swedish behaviour before in and around Prague, Ferdinand knew that the writing was on the wall. Parker notes what this drove him to do. Quote, in late September, under relentless military pressure from his enemies and desperate diplomatic urging from his friends, Ferdinand crumbled. He could not afford to fight on for the sake of Spain. The links between Spain and Austria, which had so destabilised European politics since the reign of Charles V, were fatally weakened. Since there were no further obstacles to peace, the final instruments to end the war, 128 clauses, including the issues resolved in the preliminary treaties, were signed in Munster on the 24th of October, 1648. End quote. The 128 clauses were by no means negligible. A mountain of controversy and issues were at stake, but they were debatable, they were solvable. For years, it seemed as though Europe would not make peace because of the orders given to Plenies to fight on or ensure that one's ally fought on for the sake of pressuring one's enemy. The French pressured the Dutch to endure, just like the Spanish wished the Emperor to remain against France. When the Dutch violated this premise by signing their deserved peace with Spain without total French approval, thereby technically leaving France to fight alone, it at least granted Ferdinand the relief that he would not be abandoning his ally first. For so long, the threat of being left alone had been a diplomatic sledgehammer that had smashed any hopes of peace. Now, peace was upon Germany, and fittingly, the two kingdoms who had sought to pressure others in continuing the conflict for their gain now stood awkwardly across from one another, realising that in the case of both their allies they had miscalculated, and unsure of what to do next since they were faced with a war neither could afford or wanted to fight. The Peace of Westphalia took lands from the Emperor. It recognised French control of Alsace and Lorraine, it removed the Toulouse-Atias and gave them to Saxony in perpetuity, and it granted Sweden control over half of Pomerania. However, it also ensured Habsburg geographical expansion. Bohemia was definitively Catholic and Habsburg by 1648, and neither the moves of France nor Sweden could revert it back to its 1618 state. Ferdinand II had made sure of that. Other important religious considerations were finally resolved. Calvinism was finally recognised as an official religion of the Holy Roman Empire, and the seizures of land by the Church in the Habsburg's victory days were returned, as the status quo of who owned what in terms of religious makeup reverted back to the agreed-upon date of 1624. The principle of whose rule his religion was maintained, but on a less stringent basis, meaning that there was some freedom of private worship, and that if one's leader converted, you did not have to follow suit. The Elector Palatine, 
Charles Louis, son of Frederick V, the Winter King, returned to his lands to find that Bavaria had managed to keep hold of a chunk of them, but as per the terms of the treaty, Charles would still keep his position as elector. The issue of the Palatinate, a sticky one for all involved, had thus been resolved by compromise. Max would keep for Bavaria a good deal of Palatinate land, but Charles Louis would have created for him a new electoral seat in the Electoral College, thereby pacifying Swedish concerns that that institution would be religiously unbalanced. To clear up any outstanding issues, the Swiss and Dutch were declared unilaterally free from the HRE, though both had been acting as if this were the case for some time. As you may have noticed, the Swiss were notably absent from this narrative of the Thirty Years' War, reflecting even in this early stage their national character of remaining neutral. The peace confirmed Swedish and French conquests, and it also confirmed that Spain was to be separate from the deals, since the peace had not yet been signed between it and France. France was to relinquish Franche Comte, though, since it belonged to the HRE by right of its diet, though it was a Spanish-occupied territory just in case Spain sought to use this ambiguity to draw the emperor into the war against France, a specific clause was inserted whereby Franche Comte was forbidden to be used for this purpose. Westphalia did not strip Ferdinand III of his lands. In fact, it confirmed his hereditary rights over Moravia, Silesia, and Bohemia, and ensured that his dynasty would continue to rule the Danubian region. What Westphalia did do was turn the concept of the HRE on its head, Whereas before, the emperor was the leader of the independent states of the empire, now he served as merely their de facto figurehead, and though they owed him their nominal loyalty, they could conduct their own foreign policy, and their independence would only soar from this point on. Never again would the emperor seek to command the Germans of the empire. Never again would such centralization enter into an emperor's mind. Such independence was made easier by a shift in Ferdinand's mind he began to look within rather than without. Though his father had sought to solidify his power over the HRE, Ferdinand III sought to merely cement Habsburg authority over its expanded heartlands. It was this policy of centralising politics within this region on Vienna, and on achieving uniformity in religion, that would form the basis for the Habsburg Kingdom of Austria. Under these policies, Ferdinand ensured that his dynasty's lands would turn in on themselves and go on to form one of the most successful powers of early modern Europe, as well as taking this successor state of Austria into the 20th century. The war had taught the princes of the HRE much, in particular the bigger players. Whereas Saxony appeared spent, and the Palatine seemed no longer to represent the Calvinist International, Brandenburg was angling itself towards acquiring a newfound level of notoriety within its growth into Pomerania, soon to be resolved with Sweden by the Treaty of Stettin in 1653, though maintained by a temporary boundary at this stage. In this time, a part of this region, known as Prussia, would come to encapsulate the North German Protestant state, and under its great elector would remould itself as a military equivalent of Sparta in the 17th century as a state with few resources, but with the grit, determination, and will to survive, expand, and thrive. Such thriving would enable the Prussian ruler to declare himself as a king in Prussia in 1701. Not yet able to claim a divine right to rule over the lands that technically still owed their fealty to the emperor, 
but still powerful enough to be called a king. It was, indeed, a remarkable transformation that had its roots in Westphalia. The nature of the peace was another significant issue. Westphalia is often marked as the moment in history where religious issues cease to mark European war, and where peace and the respect of state sovereignty entered into the international consciousness. Of course, some of these notes are false. Louis XIV was still claiming to represent Catholicism in Europe by 1702. Britain still feared its Catholic population right up until the early 20th century, particularly in Ireland. However, though it certainly did not see an onset of peace, and though the 17th century was as detailed as any other in Europe in terms of everyone's vying for individual dominance, the Thirty Years' War did mark the end of the Reformation. Europe would not see another war sparked by its ideas. It would not see a European population driven to alliance or war based on one's religion. Historians place a pinpoint in Westphalia because after this point it is the country you live in rather than the faith you adhere to that mattered in Europe. Just like Europe would elect to replace its state religion as a founding feature of its foreign policy with the ideas of power politics and neorealism, so too were overarching organisations and institutions, such as the papacy and perhaps even the Habsburgs, if one can consider their family an institution, losing their pull with the masses. Soon the various states of the Holy Roman Empire would begin to form their own policies. Soon the states of Europe would create their own friends and enemies, and these events would not be based on religion, at least not solely, anymore. Instead, war and peace, life and death, would soon be decided by the interests of state, by one's national consciousness, and which country you identified yourself with. Soon, Cardinal Richelieu's idea of siding with a state of a different religious affinity became regular practice. Common strategic interest replaced common religious interest. It was a rocky road to be sure, with its own disastrous consequences for mankind in Europe and beyond. However, for those who had just endured the Thirty Years' War, the promise of peace and the end of war seemed, regardless of whatever new ideas greeted or challenged them in the future, as the greatest solution to the trauma of conflicts that had so controlled their lives. The Peace of Munster meant an end to fighting, but the aftershocks of the conflict were felt over the short years following the treaty, as home governments formulated their own policies and attempted to deal with their own individual problems. Germany, of course, had suffered terribly and required numerous good harvests and periods of settled life to revert back to normal. Though with the lack of able-bodied men and the continuance of pestilence and banditry in some regions, the realisation of the results of Munster was a long time coming. Sweden had been burdened with a large debt and a commitment to pay its soldiers over 2 million Reichsthalers. Much of this had been agreed to be paid in the form of war reparations to Sweden, and the Swedish government set about decommissioning its soldiers and attempting to refocus attention back on its Baltic home and away from the centre of Germany, where for nearly two decades it had cast its eyes. The Swedish Queen Christina had long sought peace, but her reign of the kingdom her father had put on the map would be famous for all the weird reasons, though I assure you that she was a fascinating character. In any event, when the Swedes besieging Prague were informed of the Peace of Munster, their commander Wrangel knew that the end had come. He ordered his men out of the city, and though some stole a few priceless artefacts, Prague itself did not fall. 
on the Charles Bridge in Prague, over which the Prague citizens resisted charge after charge of the Swedish forces, exists the following inscription. Rest here, Walker, and be happy. You can stop here willing, but unwilling were stopped the Goths, Swedes, and their vandalic ferocity. The Dutch were soon to be troubled with a political problem of their own, as the need to increase republican powers and the need to demilitarise went against the ideals of the new stadtholder William II, who very nearly incited civil war through his desire to remain at the top of the Dutch food chain as his father had done. Maximilian of Bavaria would die on the 27th of September 1651, at the ripe and considerable for the time age of 78. His rule of Bavaria led it through some of the most turbulent and desperate times of German history. His ruthless, opportunistic and vengeful personality make him an ideal villain, but also a character created by the times in which he lived. A staple feature of our Thirty Years' War narrative since day one, I can't help but feel that, without Max, this whole special would have seemed somehow less special. Every good story of course needs a villain, but I just can't help but marvel at how long Max endured through it all, and how he didn't have a nervous breakdown even while the walls fell down around him. No doubt he was happy to live out the remaining few years of his life in peace, having dealt in wartime Bavarian politics for practically his whole life. Ferdinand III would live until the 2nd of April 1657, and on his death throne would pass to Leopold, who would carry the Holy Roman Empire into the 18th century. Ferdinand III would ensure the centralisation over his hereditary lands that his son and successor would only reinforce, and while this internal focus drew attention away from any future centralising experiments in the HRE as a whole, I think we can all agree Ferdy had a body of experience demonstrating that there was no joy to be had in attempting that. The Thirty Years' War had certainly changed the Habsburg family. The war had sapped its resources and strength, to the point that it was no longer the leading force on the continent. Ferdinand had another project in mind too. Returning soldiers were positioned in Hungary, where the Ottoman Empire was expected to return fire in the coming years. The 17th century would in fact be significant, as the final Ottoman siege of Vienna took place in September 1683. The end of an era would thereafter unfold, as Europe would emerge unthreatened from without into the 18th century and, having no alien power to fear, would seek to expand and conquer across the world. Spain and France were perhaps the odd ones out in 1648. They remained reluctant enemies of one another, and were now faced with a war that neither side believed sustainable. The biggest fears of both, that of fighting alone, be it without the Dutch or the Emperor, were now realised, and Europe surely waited in anticipation to see the results of the clash that had been building since Philip II of Spain claimed to rule the world. The results would, as we know, leave Spain behind. Soon the story of Europe would become synonymous with the name of a new European ruler, apparently made from the same stock as Philip II and in fact, able to claim a level of descent from him. Louis XIV was a name not well known to Spaniards in general in 1648, but soon, any mention of the 17th century 
would be incomplete without it. Both states would limp on in the war, as France bagged new territory in Flanders and Spain clawed back Catalonia, and Italian fronts largely stagnated. The French revolts of the Fronde heated up and threatened a governmental collapse in 1651, with the arrest of the Prince of Condé and the isolation of Mazarin's government, but France would endure. The Treaty of the Pyrenees would be Mazarin's prize for staying true to the ideals of Richelieu when he launched the war in 1635. Initially, it seemed as though France would be ruined, but in 1659 the shoe was on the other foot. France, Europeans accepted, had definitively eclipsed Spain. Cardinal Mazarin would live to see this eclipse of Spain, dying on the 9th of March 1661. His legacy, that of his predecessor and that of his successor in the French sovereign, were the redesigning of the European balance of power in the end of an era. His would be the last truly notable ministry. For a long time after, such posts were to be dominated by yes-men under the considerable influence of the absolute French king, Louis XIV. The Spanish king, Philip IV, would die on September 17, 1665. His reign had borne witness to a dramatic come-down and decline in Spanish fortunes and prestige, and his successor only continued the trend. Charles II, Philip IV's designated successor, was to be the last Habsburg king of Spain. When he died in 1700, the throne passed to a grandnephew, another Philip. However, because of the marital relations of Louis XIII to Anne of Austria, this same Philip was also the grandson of the by then supreme French king, Louis XIV. Confused? It's likely that European rulers were too, when they set about trying to consult the Franco-Spanish family tree and, concluding Louis' legitimacy, elected to start another war for the Spanish succession. The rest of it we may roughly know already. History can be traced from any point as reverberating into another, and the thing I love about the Thirty Years' War is that I could keep doing this forever, denoting ties to further periods of history we know, such as another pointless one, one of Cardinal Mazarin's nieces would bear a child by the name of Eugene, who we know today as Eugene of Savoy. There you go. Westphalia, encompassing the two cities of Osnabrück and Münster, where the French and Swedes made their diplomatic homes, were soon evacuated by foreign powers. Geoffrey Parker, in our last quotation from the Thirty Years' War special, deservedly I feel, considering the light his work has shone on the era, examines the ending formalities of the negotiations. Quote, Before long, the diplomats were packing their bags, exchanging farewell gifts, and writing their last letters. The total cost of their five years of activity was some 3.2 million thalers, about 500,000 each for France and Spain, around 250,000 each for the Emperor, the Dutch, and Sweden, and an average of 60,000 for each elector, and so on. These sums were substantial, and were in part played by the various sovereign territories of the empire, but it was nothing, in most cases, compared to the cost of the demobilization. But on the 26th of June, 1650, amidst firework displays and general rejoicing, the Swedish delegates and the imperialists signed an agreement for the phased withdrawal, 
on prearranged delays of all troops from those areas of Germany not ceded to France, Sweden, or the Emperor. End quote. It was, of course, in this Germany that the greatest devastation had been experienced, and it is no small wonder that the war is still felt in German consciousness today, and was felt even more so before the events of the 20th century superseded them in all the wrong categories. The HRE would begin its long recovery, as Westphalia had splintered the patchwork of entities into an even less centralised morass than before. Free from the horrors of continual war, from the restrictions of stringent laws, or from the authority of a centralising emperor. Germany now could and would craft its own destiny. As a famous poet of the time, Johann Vogel of Nuremberg, wrote of the result, Something you never believed in has come to pass. What? Will the camel pass through the needle's eye now that peace has returned to Germany? Before we end this episode and special, I want to conclude with something I've been saving for some time. A prayer was held in the city of Ulm on the 22nd of August 1650 to commemorate the dead and hope for the future. By that time, the last vestiges of foreign powers had mostly left the city and Germany. Though for many, the memories of the suffering remained fresh and real. The following prayer, it was said, was repeated in every pulpit, left the mouth of every preacher, and was heard in the ears of every German affected by the war. While I don't want to jar you with something religious, I do want to place you in the mind of those people you've just followed the lives and society of. How would they have reacted to the war's end? How would they have coped, etc.? I'd like you to remember that people suffered immensely during the Thirty Years' War, and that while I don't want to bring the tone down, I feel it is important to be respectful and mindful of the fact that, like all wars, it ruined lives just as much as it created new eras. And for that reason, the era deserves our sympathy, as much as it deserves our amateur historical interest. The prayer is as follows. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have given us peace after years of suffering, turmoil and war, and that you have granted our pleasure. We thank you for pulling us like a brand out of the fire, allowing us to rescue our life almost as if it were itself war booty. O Lord, you have indeed treated us with mercy that our city and lands, which have previously been full of fear and horror, are now full of joy and happiness. We beseech you, who has saved us from the sword, mercifully to let our corn grow again, that we might multiply and prosper once more. O God, the lover of peace, grant us henceforth permanent peace, and leave our boundaries and houses in calm and peace, that the voice of the war messenger shall not frighten us, and the man of war touch us not. Amen. So much of what we know and see in our lives today can be traced back to historical events. That's why this special on the Thirty Years' War was important. People have heard about it, 
They may know where it occurred, but they don't know what happened. The figures who controlled it, the men who gave their lives for it, the ideas that would shock us, and the bravery and characters that would make us marvel. A people like Gustavus Adolphus, like Frederick V of the Palatinate, like Albrecht of Wallenstein, like Ferdinand II, like Cardinal Richelieu, like Sigismund III of Poland, like Christian IV of Denmark, like the Count of Tilly, like Ernst of Mansfield, or like good old Max of Bavaria. So interesting, and often so crucial to understand in history, yet so brushed over and ignored in favour of the mainstream syllabus. Just like other periods of history, this one deserves coverage in as accurate, balanced and extensive an approach as possible. I hope I did it justice. God knows it's been an interesting, exciting and incredibly stressful time since we began in August in 2013. I really couldn't have done it without you guys, without your emails of encouragement, your positive feedback or your kind words. I really appreciate the donations too. It's great to see the level of appreciation from you guys and to know that the 30 Years War was a story you were dying to hear told. Thanks so much to the folks in college, you know who you are, who encouraged me along and pointed me in the right direction in terms of sources. Thanks very much to those sources, to whom I owe a great deal of gratitude and I'm indebted to, for their ability to shed light on the era so effectively. A big thanks also to my friends and family who have had to suffer through excited outbursts about the Thirty Years' War for the past ten months. Or had to endure my absence, hey I know it's hard, because I stayed at home to work on this. Thanks also to the music providers. Games like Civilization 4 and Europa Universalis 3, and medieval artists like Palestrina, whose voices and sounds introduce so many of our episodes. I am working on a soundtrack, and I'll keep you posted when it's up. Finally, thanks to the history for, well, existing. I think I've covered everything. Thanks one last time to you, history nerd and history friend, whoever you are and wherever you are listening from right now, for making it through all those thank yous to the end of my last episode on my mammoth special on the Thirty Years' War. My name is Zach, and you have been listening to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.98, Westphalia Made. Thanks so very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.